When I first came here, there was no sense of entitlement among the immigrants who arrived in 1985 when I came here at the age of 20. There was a sense of gratefulness. One was grateful for having been let in, and one thought that one had an obligation to sort of give back or to sort of improve on the country that you're a part of to make this a better place. And among a lot of the immigrants who are coming in now, there's, I see it among my student immigrants, there's a sense of entitlement. America owes me something. I came here with a green card legally, but there are a lot of immigrants who legal or illegal come here thinking that they're owed something by the country. And this is something that I think the far left encourages among immigrants. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Orpike. Joining me once again is Mr. Jonathan Astro. Now, how are you, John? <laughs> I'm all right. I've got no complaints. Now, do you ever feel like you owe somebody something? Like like money or something, you know? Yeah, oh, if, I've bought, if I've got goods or something, you know, then I owe the money, yeah. I guess. But most other times, no. So you don't, you don't feel like you owe, say, I don't know, 48.2 million people something you know a little bit of your cash perhaps. seems like a lot depends <laughs> what i've done it like, depends what i've done to them um recently in my my lifetime in your lifetime no no what about your your grandfather's 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 lifetime right oh well i'm open to i'm open to negotiation <laughs> <laughs> which is a good segue i think to uh one of the topics of today's uh interview i'm to believe uh, uh the heady topic of reparations i believe comes up Yes, yes, we are talking to Jason D. Hill about uh, a number of things, including reparations. And uh, he was an absolute legend. He, I, I believe he had COVID while he uh, did this interview. So uh, you wouldn't know it, but uh, he did uh, push on through. Yep. Uh, and uh, we, would, we, 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 we were just, he was uh, delighted to be there and, and, um, and his optimism was, was uh, totally infectious. Indeed it was. All right. Well, I don't want to hear from you anymore. I only I want someone who I want proper people. All right. So on with the show. Jason D. Hill is a poet, novelist, and professor of philosophy, specialising in the areas of ethics, political philosophy, moral psychology, American politics, and foreign policy. He has published work in the Federalist, the American Mind, the American Thinker, Commentary Magazine, and Spiked Magazine. He has also authored several books, including What Do White Americans Owe Black People, Racial Justice in the Age of Post-Oppression, and the best-selling We Have Overcome, An Immigrant's Letter to the American People. Jason, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Jason, thank you for joining us, uh, particularly under the circumstances. In your book, We Have Overcome, you talk about your journey to America. Would you, would you mind telling, I'm sure you've told this story a, a lot, but, but it is a, a wonderful story. Would you mind giving us the, the highlights of, of your story of, of how you got to America? Well, you know, somehow as a child, I fell in love with America very early on. I, we start high school. We start school, high school. We start school at, five, at four, and we start high school at 10. It's based on the British model. And so I'd read a lot about American history from about the age of, I'd say, seven or eight. And I thought, this is a spectacular country. I want to be an American citizen one day. And my, 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 my cousin, actually, was the ambassador from Jamaica to Switzerland. And I remember my mother saying to me, do you want to go to boarding school in Switzerland and you can become a European and learn all these foreign languages? And I said to her, most certainly not. We have to find a way to get me to America. Europe sounds boring. Switzerland, who, who wants to become Swiss? I want to be an American one day. And um, so as good fortune would have it, my, my grandmother's brother was an American because he married an American woman and he was able to sponsor my grandmother the old fashioned way, who then sponsored my mother 
and she sponsored both her children and we decided my brother and i decided we wanted to come to america my mother said we were too young so she gave up her entire career and came along and um and uh, i started college i really came to be a novelist and i wanted to get a phd in philosophy i came with 120 dollars in my pocket my mother wasn't able financially to support um my my college education but she was there along with my grandmother to provide moral support and it was a wonderful struggle i worked up to five jobs four jobs at a time to put myself through school until i could um get a scholarship to do my phd and i just thought that america and i still think this way was a sort of unprecedented phenomenon that it was a very unique place and that it gave one the opportunity to sort of rewrite one's life from scratch in the sense that one could pin one's aspirational identity on a vision that one had for one's life that which one wanted to become in reality one could achieve that in america i think one could achieve it in canada in in england in australia in france definitely um to some in, in varying degrees but i have to say that i would among all those countries i would put still put america up there in the top tier <laughs> and um um uh, it's i think it's far easier um in america to, to to really achieve your what i call your aspirational identity and fell in love with america from the moment i got here and um and um so spent f eight years in atlanta um i didn't start college until i was 22 because i had to work um very hard to put myself through school uh to pay my tuition and so on and then took two years off to actually write and a novel which is still not published i ended up publishing five books but that novel never got published um and also spent two years reading widely in every single imaginable field in from anthropology economics because i wanted to enter graduate school with a broad swath of knowledge in in a multiplicity of fields and then finally got a scholarship to do my phd in philosophy and um and the rest has been a continuous you know love affair with america um that uh that still continues but there is just something a love that i have I, I and i still although it's it's been vexing and troubling at times in recent years um i've grown a little bit disappointed in the manner in which or the shape in which i think america is taking form but the spirit and the ideals of this country still remain intact and they are what attracted me in the first place mm. well what, what what did america offer you that your birth country didn't well, you know, that's a very interesting question. I grew up in a, in a middle-class family. My grandfather should have really been the first prime minister of Jamaica because when my father was born, his, 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 he was placed in detention center by the British government because he was a pioneer in the independence, in the independence movement. Um, so I grew, I came from a, a hail from a very political intellectual family. He was the editor of a newspaper and a trade unionist for what was called colored people. And I worked as a, a journalist in a newspaper right after high school, and I was being groomed for the editorship. But there's only one newspaper there when I was growing up. There was, there was one university. Um, so my opportunities would have been very, very limited. Um, I knew I wanted to be an intellectual. I knew I was an intellectual when I was a child. I knew I wanted to be a writer when I was nine years old. The scope of my ambition was vast. I was a very precocious, ambitious child. I was reading Dickens and Dostoevsky when I was about seven or eight. And I knew that to transplant that intellect and, and, and to transplant my ambitions 
onto a landscape required a country that could accommodate them. And Jamaica was just not that tiny, tiny, it's very small, really, comparatively speaking. That very small country wouldn't, I would be completely frustrated um, in, in Jamaica. And I still feel that way when I go back there. I've, after about a, a month, I was just there for a month taking care of my mother who retired, who went back. She had surgery. And I feel, I often say to her, Mom, I can't believe that I, I this, this place feels like I love it, but it feels like a tiny village. Um, I'm absolutely bored after a month. And so America, Jamaica would not have, even if I had gotten a job at university as a, as a professor or lecturer, um, the capacity to travel across the world. I mean, I've been to like, with the publication of my books, I've been to like, I think about 50 countries talking about my work. The capacity to travel all across America giving lectures on my work. Um, just the multiplicity of opportunities would not have been available in Jamaica. Well, America clearly offers immigrants, refugees and asylum seekers a, a unique opportunity to flourish with little obligation or, or cost, really. Your story is one we've heard again and again. Clearly, America is still inconvenient, as it may be for some to say, exceptional in, in this regard. Why is it taboo? to embrace the idea that in many positive ways, America is still exceptional? Well, that's a very good question. I think because in certain vectors of our society, profess, but especially in among the professoriate, in the universities, among the left, um, there is a profound hatred for this country. And I've said this over and over again, that there are people who want to destroy America, who would rather see America die on the vine than admit that problems that that are existent today and the fact that it was born with a terrible birth defect called slavery and the fact that it had a horrible historical legacy uh, in, in the sense of discriminatory practices against blacks um that it still is a country in moral what i call moral progress it's it's always progressing and becoming better that there are people who are envious of success, hate the good because it is good, and um, and but more importantly, want to transform the nature of America into a different kind of republic. That is, they want to transform it into something like a socialist state. I think, and they hate the fact that America is is a capitalist state. It, it's it's interesting because these people <laughs> we can get more into it later, but the these dissidents or the people who who have this feeling, um, it's don't they realize that? I mean, this is rhetorical slightly, but uh, in America, you're allowed to be Noam Chomsky, you're allowed to be uh, a dissident, you're allowed to 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 be AOC, you're allowed to walk down the street and say America sucks and it's terrible. But if you did that in China, um. Well, that would be a short day for you. And if you did that, there's so many places in the world where you're not afforded the luxury to be able to go and uh, to, 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 to be one of these people at, an, at a university that spends their life uh, hating on, on America and, and writing about it and, have, and living com comfortably as well. Well, I, th I think what's happening is that there's a form of identity politics that has taken root in this country where to declare, to, to declare that America is... Uh, uh, exceptional country is to equate it with white supremacy. You hear this coming out of the classrooms that exceptionalism is synonymous with white supremacy. 
that um, to say that it's an unprecedented phenomenon is to trace it back to its founding, its founding elements, and its founding elements is forged in the crucibles of white supremacist uh, architects who own slaves, and ostensibly point to the elements in which it is an exceptional country is to point to individuals who were racist. I, I get that all the time. Uh, and you find that in the classroom, even in this movement to decolonize syllabi and to to um, get and to, to get rid of texts that are um, authored by dead white European males and to decolonize the syllabi and to make them more um, less white. So I think there's a kind of identity politics that has taken root where exceptionalism um, is seen as offensive to people of color because exceptionalism um, stands for other things also. It stands for excellence. It stands for um, greatness. It stands for a lot of things which seem to be the standard bearer for something called whiteness. This is part of, of, of the new woke supremacy madness that's going on in America today. That um, and it seems to um, indict those who are not excellent or those who are not great as being inferior. So it's a, it's a bunch of malarkey, really. But I think it's a form of identity politics at root that would seek to condemn those who regard America as as exceptional. One one thing I don't, don't understand is that many immigrants are leaving behind social political situations that are significantly worse in terms of equality, opportunities, and possibilities. Why don't we ever hear from these people? There must be scores of folks from around the world who, who love the freedom they have in America, yet we don't seem to hear their stories the way we used to. Well, I think there are a couple of things going on. I think there's so much noise. You know, the, the cacophony is out there is just uh, mind-blowing. And I think also that there is a new breed of immigrants um, I hate to say this, but uh, there, when I first came here, there was no sense of entitlement among the immigrants who arrived in 1985 when I came here at the age of 20. There was a sense of gratefulness. One was grateful for having been let in, and one thought that one had an obligation to sort of give back or to sort of improve on the country that you're a part of to make this a better place. And among a lot of the immigrants who are coming in now, there's, I see it among my student immigrants, there's a sense of entitlement. America owes me something. Uh, whether I'm I came here with a green card legally, but there are a lot of immigrants who, legal or legal, they come here thinking that they're owed something by the country. And this is something that I think the far left encourages among immigrants, that um, they use them as political pawns in order to gain votes and to earn votes. It's something that is fostered a sense of entitlement, a sense of aggrievement, which is a horrible thing to enter a country, feeling that you are already uh, a victim by your host country. This was not a sensibility shared by the generation of immigrants that came along during my era. Um, we did not feel that we were <laughs> victims when we came to America, quite the opposite. We felt that we had hit pay dirt and that the streets were lined with gold and we we're just going to take a little chip for ourselves and er by earning it and know there's something quite different that um, um, the, the, the sensibilities of immigrants have changed because the political climate is radically different, right? The political climate today is one that uh, encourages victimology, encourages, encourages aggrievement, encourages the sense of entitlement 
And it's not just among immigrants, it's among the general population in general that one is owed something, that there is a, a vast um, class of predators that are out to get you, to destroy your way of life before you even build one. And so that's that's the answer to your question, I think I would give. Right? It, it, the sensibilities of these immigrants are affected. They think they have a right to be here. And I want to make this point. Immigration, in my point of view, is not a right. It is a privilege because every country has a right. And I'm very pro-immigration, but every country has a right to fix its geographic borders, to vet those who would seek admittance within its borders, and then by various criteria to determine who gets let in and who unfortunately can't get let in. And the idea that one has a, a, a human right to be admitted into any country is is untenable, first of all, um, physically. And politically, it's just, it's, uh, I think it does, just doesn't make sense. Well, I have a question on, on politics, but just on that point of, of the of the changing attitudes of, of immigrants, I, I obviously have experienced America a lot through the screen. <laughs> uh, so I remember growing up, uh, there'd be a, a sitcom like Perfect Strangers, which is about uh, a guy from a fake European town or whatever, a, a really poor town, who comes to live in America and... The refrain from that character in that show was always like, America, what a country, you know? Like, isn't it great? He was so amazed by everything. And we see this a lot, like in Coming to America with Eddie Murphy. It's like, America's amazing, you know? Like, there was this sort of real... Uh, I, I don't know. It, it was over, overwhelmed by by the freedom and the opportunities, and and the world was at your feet. And often the characters were, you know, starting at the bottom but working their way up. And I feel that that's something. Like if I made that sitcom today, I feel like it wouldn't get up. That's true. It would not because it would it would uh, it would offend the sensibilities of many people. Because what it would do, it would comparatively speaking it would well, it would draw a comparison between america and other countries and one is not supposed to do that in this age of cultural relativism all countries all cultures are equal and by sort of making america into an exception you are implicitly or explicitly um, depending on on who's doing the comparison you're making a comparison between america and other countries and you're saying that other countries are lesser than america which is quite sh which is quite true there are cultures that are in fast inferior to other cultures um i don't think saudi arabian culture or iranian culture persia once had a, a rich culture but i don't think north korean culture or uh, today russian political culture or the culture of uh, Iran or or North Korea or um, or China, for for example, um, is the moral equivalent of the Republic of France or Canada or the United States of America. So people are fleeing from certain cultures that have backward, barbaric, primordial, savage practices. And if they weren't fleeing from those barbaric, primordial countries into a a, a culture that prizes and and primes human rights. Uh, what are they doing? So I think the comparison, the film would not get made today because what those films do is they single out America as a, an exceptional cult, cult civilization, actually, and draw a comparison to... It, it sets up a hierarchical model in, and it compares America to other cult, cultures, and, and that's just disturbing in this age of equity and, and, and diversity and inclusion.
where everything that's included is supposed to be included without any kind of um, uh, criteria for um, for 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 making distinctions in terms of superior or inferior. Everything is just equal and. We're not supposed to have any way of adjudicating among truth claims that would say, well, this, this, you know, just as we do in athletes, I'm not the athletic prowess of Venus or Serena Williams or my fellow countryman Usain Bolt. I mean, these people are my athletic superiors and we're not all intellectually equal. I'm not the equal of Einstein. I'm not the equal of many of my colleagues in philosophy or intelligence wise. I don't have the highest IQ. I mean, I have a good IQ, but it's the, there are some people who have better IQs. I think same way politically, civilization, we can say on a threshold that certain cultures are superior to others. But I think your film would not get made because it would draw a comparison um, against other cultures and just really show that how still to this day, I'm not sure how much longer America will retain its foothold as a superior culture. Because uh, there's so many forces at at, at, at work to bring to, to bring about a, dec a radical decline, but uh, it would draw a comparison to other cultures that um, that would be very offensive to people. Well, you've inspired me. I think I might write it. But uh, I I have a question about politics since you brought it up, Jason. the The way the people in the Democratic Party and other elites talk about immigrants. I get the feeling they don't have much contact with them. What 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 do these people get wrong? Uh, you know about people from from elsewhere. Well, I think I think both parties get get don't really get get the immigration thing right. But let me since you asked about the Democrats, I think that what the Democrats don't get right is that they assume a sort of I'm going to use a big word here a monolithicity among immigrant groups, that all immigrant groups are monolithic. And they, especially with the Hispanic community, they seem to assume that um, they seem to disregard the conservative nature of a lot of Hispanic groups, that Hispanic groups are, are largely Catholic, largely religiously conservative, socially conservative. Um, for example, are many of them are pro-life. Um, many of them are socially conservative and once they get settled in america they want to find communities that reflect um their values and i think what the demo what the, the democrats don't get is the sense that once you're fleeing from an oppressive country um that you're going to vote yourself into socialism <laughs> and it's not it's not surprising. I mean, I'm an independent conservative. I've never, I'm not a Republican, but um, it's not surprising when a lot of these immigrant groups come into America and they vote locally on the Republican level because they are, they have emerged from dictatorial, authoritative, oppressive regimes, and they're looking for a form of what they con would consider to be a limited government interference in their lives, and some of them associate that rightly or wrongly with the Republican Party. And so I think the Democrats don't get the nuanced and the fact that these immigrant groups are not monolithic. And even within a particular country like Mexico, which has I spent so much time there studying Spanish, several states. I mean, I was in the state of Oaxaca years ago, um, and Oaxaca has about nine different ethnic indigenous groups, some of whom don't even understand each other because they speak different. They all speak Spanish, but they speak different, you know, ethnic ethnic languages. So in, in this, just in one state of Mexico, 
Oaxaca, you have different ethnic groups to say nothing of all of Mexico. So I think the Democrats need to pay, I think both the Democrats and the Republicans, but since we're dealing with the Democrats here, need to pay closer attention to the specificities that constitute the identities of these groups that are coming in and pay more attention to their value systems um, and not just take for granted that these are just a bunch of, um, you know, a lumpen bunch of immigrants who share a language there they have something linguistically in common which is spanish and um you know we can just take for granted that they're going to buy the narrative that that we hand them i think the social conservatism is the real red flag i i i feel that that is something that people on the left have an inability to recognize that they, they completely ignore the social conservatism of of say um a muslim family or or a yeah, Hispanic, or, or there are so many uh, groups where it's probably quite patriarchal as well, the home, and and very traditional and very socially conservative. And, and yet, when the Dems do their ads or when Hillary does a, you know, I know I'm going back now, but like I just remember her campaigns and stuff, it was always like this vision, this very specific vision of liberal, uh, progressive, this tiny proportion of liberal, progressive, acceptable mm-hmm. immigrants or, or, or people of colour, and it just ignored... Uh, huge swathes of probably of the even of the black community of everyone. Yes, that's true. That's true, and to their detriment because we saw during the 2016 election where the the the, the vote. Of, I think if I remember the, the polls correctly, the black and the Hispanic turnout vote turnout was the lowest in four to five years in the history of America. Uh, so a lot of people thought that Mrs. Clinton won because she called <laughs> Trump supporters deplorables. But I think the deeper uh, a reason was that uh, she failed to capture the imagination, the, the the interest of black and Hispanic cultures because she had just taken them along with the Democratic Party for granted. Um, and the narrative being spawned by this elite bourgeois party was just not really appealing anymore to the majority of blacks or Hispanics. Mm. Well, you came to the U.S. a few decades ago now. At, at what what point did you first start to become aware of the anti-American, dissident, grievance-based strain of of, of the country? Uh, uh, you know, was it there from the time you first arrived? No, no, no. There were vestiges of it in college, but I think um, I think a turn. I started to see a turn around um, after nine eleven. That's when I began to see some signs of 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 this sort of anti-Americanism because people started to say. I remember after nine one one, and we all I went to school the next day. People in my department saying said, "Why do they hate us so much? It's our fault, and we deserve this. You know, we did this to these people." And I was completely horrified. I mean, I said, "What are you talking about?" Um, I remember a colleague actually saying, you know, maybe there should be more bombings and then America will really wake up and realize how cruel it's been to the rest of the world. And I just got, I thought, this is malarkey. I said, America has behaved with enormous restraint given its military power. And um, America has been a haven to many, many people. And yes, we have interfered in the foreign policy of countries, but we're not, a, we're not a, an NGO. And um, you show me one country in the Western Hemisphere that has not interfered in um, the foreign affairs of another country, and I will show you a country that is probably not a world player 
on the world stage. And that's just how geopolitics work. So um, don't single out America as some sort of evil uh, um, player. And but but I, it was after 9/11 that I began to really see a kind of anti-Americanism growing virulently, especially on the college camp, mostly on the college campuses, because that's the breeding ground. You know, that's the conveyor transmission belt of ideas. I get that 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 can get sort of spread into the general populace and the general culture and make its way into the workplace and into Hollywood and to the media. It, it sort of starts in the classroom, I think, among the professoriate. Yes. Well, perhaps we'll dive into uh, s- some issues from your uh, second book that we wanted to talk about here. Uh, you begin this book uh, called What Do White Americans Owe Black People?, you tackle the issue of reparations by starting big. You talk about the slave trade and the parties involved in a very unique way, particularly in this first chapter. You say, quote, In the absence of a self-defensive African civilization, no one can more blame the Europeans for their conquering impulses any more than one can blame a magnificent lion from attacking and devouring the helpless and pathetic antelope on the plains of the African savannah. Close quote. Now, this is only a few words of a very lengthy chapter, which is very unfair of me to read that out of context. However, it does feature some of the more provocative elements that 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 you explore. Uh, 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 would you mind expanding on your thesis of of of, of this first chapter? Well, there are two things uh, to remember. Um, one is that um, without the participation and the collusion uh, among Africans, Arabs, and Europeans, the slave trade could never have gotten off the ground. I mean, even someone like Henry Louis Gates. Uh, with great reluctance, admitted that 94% of the slave trade was facilitated by Africans kidnapping uh, other Africans and um, selling them to the Europeans. So this idea that we've had in in our in the global imaginary that Europeans arriving on African shores, running and screaming Africans, trying to evade the European the clutches of Europeans is just nonsense. That is, there was a, an agreement among local chieftains and even kings and lords, um, warlords, um, to get, and the slave trade would never have gotten off the ground without the collusion. So when we're talking about reparations, we need to also talk about maybe African countries giving reparations to current African-Americans because of the collusion. But the most, the second most more important part I wanna talk about is that when a civilization is dominated by an animistic, um, sensibility as the Africans were, the sub-Saharan Africans were, and you fail to abstract yourself from nature, and as the Europeans certainly did, and you see yourself as indistinguishable from nature, and you don't develop a personality that is separate and apart from nature, but you see yourself as part of nature, there's a way in which you're going to be not just technologically, but politically incapable of defending yourself from predators or individuals or nations that see you as predators. The beginning of the slave trade started before the development of, or the creation of racial taxonomies. So the point I make in that chapter is that when the Europeans landed, what they saw were individuals who had made themselves indistinguishable from water buffalo, from any other part of nature. And as far as Europeans were concerned, these individuals were ripe for the taking. They had no technological method of improving themselves. They had no concept of property rights. They had no concept of individual rights. They had no concepts of 
well, they had no concept of, of a political vocabulary that made themselves indistinguished from nature, like the concept of, a, of an individuated eye. And this is, a, this is a problem that you find among animistic cultures that do not, if, if nature is your friend and nature is not something to be exploited and nature is not something that you, like the animals, you adapt yourself to nature, unlike human beings who adapt nature to meet their needs, then you're not going to be able to develop a, a vast and, 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 and formidable political or technological weaponry. So I wanted to make that point very clear in the sense that um, from a strictly anthropological standpoint, the Europeans basically saw in the beginning, afterwards they developed, they did develop a racial taxonomy to sort of justify what they were doing. But in the beginning, um, and I'm not saying this is necessarily a good thing or it's right, I'm just trying to anthropologically explain what happened, is that when you make yourself indistinguishable from nature, when you don't exploit nature, uh, as the Europeans certainly did, and see yourself as separate and apart from it, and thereby develop resources out of nature to defend yourself, um, you are going to be regarded as nothing more than a, a junk heap of exploitable um, material. And that's how the Europeans basically saw the Africans. Uh, I don't think they saw them as yet in the beginning as some sort of inferior racial group that we had to take it. Later on, they did, of course. But I think they saw them as just stuff from nature that could be exploited and harnessed just the way that you use any domesticated animal, uh, any animal that you domesticate and you put to use um, on a farm. I think that's how they saw, ultimately, they saw the slaves. So I wanted to get back to the beginning of the beginning because people don't realize that at the beginning of slavery, the racial taxonomies that we are the legatees of and the racial identities, black, white, African, uh, African-American, Negroes, these terms didn't really originate until the time of David, the Scottish Enlightenment, David Hume, um, Immanuel Kant. This is much, much later on after the, the slave trade had started. And so it's a very controversial chapter and I've gotten a lot of flack from it, but I want to do some serious anthropological, philosophical anthropo anthropological work here and to show that this is the price one pays for being an animist as opposed to having a Christian ethos where you are commandeered by God uh, to be a fiduciary and a custodian of the earth. And everything that you can extract from the earth and from nature, and more importantly, the Christian ethos is one that makes you see yourself as not part of nature, but separate and apart from nature, which is an ethos that distinguishes animist man from Christian man, because the animist does not, the animist sees himself as part of nature, indistinguishable from nature, whereas a Christian sees himself as in the made in the image of God as being separate and apart from nature. And nature is something that serves his or her needs, not the other way around. One does not have to pray to an animal before one kills it. One slaughters the animal because one has a right the animal serves one needs. One does not don animal skin um, by taking on the animal spirit. One slaughters the animal and takes on the skin to bring oneself warmth. So all these sorts of nuances, I think, are very important. And it's a very controversial title that I gave 
how the African made himself into a slave. I mean, one really doesn't literally make oneself into a slave, but one makes oneself into the kind of commodity or the kind of entity by failing to distinguish oneself from nature. That's where the whole um, tragedy starts, is by holding this animist philosophy, animistic philosophy. I thought that it was a spectacular chapter. It's just, just the sort of writing that gets the blood pumping. You read it and you go, oh my goodness, this person is this, this person is uh, really going for it. And that's what I, what I loved about it. And perhaps, do you think people were so outraged because you, you were precisely not following the script? You weren't being uh, necessarily, you weren't assigning value judgments. You, you were trying to bring back, uh, to undo some of the, the memory holding that's gone on of 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 because now when people when we talk about the slave trade or even as far back as beginning i would imagine people trying to get you to think about django unchained like they would just be like <laughs> they would be like this is the you know or roots or something they'd be like this is this is how it's happening and uh uh this is only how it's happening and it and and, and sort of you've you've bucked the trend and tried to remind the reader of uh, get us inside the mind of of a pre David Hume uh, European coming to those lands. Is, is is do you think there's something to that? I think there's something to that. I think people have selective memory and 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 they 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 don't want to attribute the way in which philosophy and ideas and a, a philosophic system, which animism is, it's really a, a a sort of belief system about oneself and one's relationship to the world can determine um, one's capacity to to create artifacts out of nature which can really advance one's civilization or one's culture that philosophy and ideas and epistemology you know how you come to truth claims how you, the belief systems that you have about the world whether you think that sacrificing an animal to placate the rain gods is really what's going to be responsible for warding off evil versus a more slow approach to the scientific method, um, and which leads to mastery over nature as opposed to submission to nature. I wanted to really get that across the reader that an animistic culture that is more devoted to submission to nature, where one is actually a supplicant to nature, whereas European man is most emphatically not a supplicant to nature in any way, quite the opposite is a hubristic, arrogant, and I mean this in an almost laudatory manner, hubristic, arrogant uh, master and conqueror of nature. When Columbus got on those three ships, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, and, and fought um, the, un the unknown and fought uncertainty and the elements of nature, he was not being a supplicant. He was being a conqueror. He was saying, I am acting under the auspices of God who has sent me out before even the term manifest destiny was created. I am going to achieve a manifest destiny. Um, and in some sense, whatever I find out there is going to become the territorial possession of the, of the crown under whose um, authority um, I am being sent. But the ultimate imprimatur that stamps or the insignia that, that, that that gives me the seal of, of, of approval, really, comes from a mandate from God. And that is not something that animists have. They're supplicants, they are obsequious, subservient to nature. And you find this even today in Native American cultures. And, and there's, it's not that there's, they're not admirable. I'm not saying that they're not admirable traits 
or aspects to you know bowing before nature and and having a sort of reverential spirit to nature i'm just saying when you face a civilization that has an exact opposite approach um you're you're going to be right for the taking and um and i use the animal kingdom as a sort of what's the word i'm looking for um counterpart and i think people i think people resent this because people want to think that um all cultures again are are equal and I'm, but I want to say equal in what respect when we talk about equality you know we're we're equal in the eyes of God and we're equal in terms of that we possess intrinsic dignity but clearly those individuals who are able to um, abstract themselves from nature and and through a narrative and probably an illusion but a necessary illusion and a functional illusion see themselves as acting as custodians of the earth I mean when you think of the audacity of tiny England, this little small island, the audacity of Portugal, I mean, to own colonies in Africa, England at one point, I think, owning, governing a third of the globe. I mean, one has to say, well, let's do some some philosophical anthropology here. How is this possible? How did, how did one small island called England end up bombarding India, most of Africa, the Caribbean islands, and Spain did the same with South America. You know, you have to sort of do the investigation and 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 look at the relationship between a belief in God and what that God commands you to do, and the ability to abstract yourself from nature and be in charge of nature and see yourself as the custodian of the earth. It's a hubristic, it's a arrogant, and it's and it's in the end, it's fabulous because it's built a civilization that. We are the legacies of today. I mean, it, it, it's it, it's horrific, also in that it left a lot of destruction and cruelty and tragedy in its wake. But I'm not a sentimental person. I have a very warm heart. I tell people, and a mind that's as cold as a slab of uh, of ice. And uh, <laughs> I mean, I, my friends love me to death because I'm extremely warm-hearted. But my mind is very cold and icy and analytic. And uh, when I write, I just don't write in a sentimental way. At all, I just look at, I try to look at facts and and uh, not be too mushy in my thinking. I mean, maybe that's just how I'm trained as a logician, or that's just how I am as a person. I'm mushy. I mean, I, I can go on a first date and have my heart be broken uh, if it doesn't work out well. But but give me a book and or give me ideas, and I'm just totally cold. And so um, <laughs> a little bit of. A little bit of a little bit of humor here in the midst of a serious conversation about how I can <laughs> no, no, I can good. cry after okay. a first date that doesn't work out. But <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we should turn our attention to, to to reparations here. What what is the argument for for reparations in in the US today? Well, the argument is one that I do take seriously, and that my thinking continues. The argument basically is that. Um, Many of the disparities and the inequities that continue to um, plague uh, Black Americans uh, and the disparities and the lack of parity that we see between the races, really Blacks and whites, are traceable back to back to slavery. That's one argument. Um, so that's argument exhibit A, I would say, that the disparities that exist today and the and the inequities, the vast inequities, are, are traceable back to slavery. And then exhibit B would be something like, there is something called systemic racism that's still existent today that suffuses all institutions. And the systemic racism has changed in form 
but not really in content from the, the, the days of Jim Crow um, segregation, that the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which I talk about in chapter three of the book, um, is a sort of cosmetic surface gesture, but it really hasn't changed the way that institutions behave, that, um, that systemic racism proliferates and continues to place blacks at a disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis whites and so reparations are necessary. So those are two, um, I try to find the legitimate um, arguments that one can treat charitably and treat seriously. Those are the two exhibits A and B that I would say are offered in order to justify something like reparations today. So j just some small things. How popular is the is the idea of reparations in the US by your lights? Is it is this something that many black people want? Obviously, it gets a lot of we get a lot of airtime on social media, but I, I've got no sense of of whether this is a a something that a lot of people want. Well, uh, Gavin Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, is unprecedented in his. Um, government uh, in his rulership in the sense that he has made sweeping um, directives that will make California, I think, the first state to offer reparations to blacks. Um, there's H.R. 40, which is slowly making its way through Congress under the Biden administration um, that will cost the country, I think, $14 trillion. The details haven't been worked out, whether it's going to be free education for all blacks or payouts. So it's, it's going to be uh, a very, very hot topic. Um, I think issues like inflation and COVID um, have certain sort of dampened the, the conversation somewhat, but it's going to be a very, very hot topic because a lot, and I tell you why, there's a lot of talk about income disparity in America today and the increasing wealth gap between the races. And that is only going to increase as if we see, if we see the, the projections that some economists have made about the coming inflation and recession, uh, I don't know um, how much faith to put in that, but I see no reason to be cynical about it. It's possible that something like reparations um, will will make uh, will will be like a political talking point in 2024. Um, North Carolina, I think, has issued some directives in that direction. But I certainly think that um, a lot, the majority, I think something like 74% of black people think that they're owed reparations. I'm not entirely against the idea that if you can ostensibly point to, I think there was a case in Mississippi that I supported where generational wealth, intergenerational wealth was impeded by certain punitive, horrific laws that were generated on the Jim Crow which prevented families from passing on farmlands and the state confiscated um, those lands under Jim Crow. And so the land was, you know, through reparations, land was restored. I think in cases like that, if you can sort of quid pro quo show this happened, then we need to do this, then that's one thing. Just as we had reparations for Japanese Americans under the internment and for Jews who could ostensibly show that properties were jewelry, properties, artworks, but many properties were stolen from them by the Nazis. Uh, if African-Americans can show something like that, then I think reparations are due or in order. But the idea of wholesale reparations that Obama's kids, um, who are very, very privileged, or any number of African-American kids who are at Ivy League schools, 
are as deserving because they're black as kids on the south side of Chicago uh, that I might teach um, seems one needs to have a conversation about about the tenability and the ethicality of something like that. Uh, well, you do argue in your book that fr from a certain perspective, the debt has been paid. Mm. Now, could, could you could you explain explain this? Right. So the the argument that I make in my book is that America has gone through three three great foundings. The first was 1776. The second was the Civil War, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. And more importantly, the third great founding was the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, and then the 1972 Unemployment Act, um, and the subsequent affirmative action programs that followed. My position really is that um, the 1964 Civil Rights Act was an act of moral eugenics because it attempted, it was a, it was a violation of property rights, and I think it was given the collusion between the state and private citizens, given the way in which the state really did make racists out of a lot of non-racist whites by preventing them from interacting commercially or um, entrepreneurially with blacks, um, it did make a lot of white people into racists. Uh, the biggest, I always say the biggest enemy of black people in this country um, was not uh, other whites. It was the state who manufactured policies and laws that made it illegal for white people to rent and to and to and to sell homes and and so on to to other to to to, to, to blacks. So, I think the 1964 Civil Rights Act was a moral eugenics act in the sense that it attempted to sort of tell white people you cannot use your property as an extension of your living room, as an extension of your identity. We are going to mandate that it is in civil, civilly and criminally, uh, uh, it's illegal, and you can't do this. And it was a, it was a, a massive attempt to re-socialize the sensibilities of whites and into making them non-racist. Now, short of growing into a bloated, totalitarian, authoritative state, I think that's as far as we can really go in order to remain as a free constitutional republic. That is, given the affirmative action programs, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which did not just bring blacks full equality before the law, but went a, a step further and saying to, to whites, you can't use your corporations, you can't use your, even your private business as, uh, as a site of discrimination because blacks are now a protected class of citizens. How much, how much farther can, can the state go really without becoming very, very intrusive and stepping on the liberties of of individuals, in this case, white individuals, it can't. It, it then then we just become a very very bloated totalitarian state that uh, prizes um, the rights of certain people over the rights of others. And I think the debt has been paid in the sense that the six of four civil rights act, which was no gift to black people for heaven's sake, um, in terms of bringing them fully caught before the law, that was not a gift. That was an inalienable right that had been denied them. But it went a it even went a step further in declaring Lyndon Johnson's great war on poverty and introducing the welfare state to a greater extent, which I think damaged the black community. But I think it was done in good faith, actually. I don't think Johnson meant to destroy or break up the black family. I think it was just an extension of the, the dark side of the civil rights movement, um, where the state became the surrogate husband of a lot of black women, which then disincentivized black men from being fathers. Um, and led to the breakup of the black family. 
the, the, the debt has been paid. Um, if we if we want to say that the revolutionary studies or the victim studies programs that we see proliferating college campuses today, starting with black studies, which then morph into gender studies, women's studies, queer studies, post-colonial studies, uh, that admitted blacks into the so- what I call the sovereign mass uh, and gave them some semblance, not some semblance, a great deal of autonomy and sovereignty in how they govern themselves in academic life on the universities. That's another great moment. Well, I think it's been disastrous, actually, as an academic of 25 years. But that's a, a, a stupendous moment, just speaking detachedly, in the history of given how excluded blacks were from the universities. Many of them were relegated to all black colleges on a Jim Crow. Very few were admitted to like Harvard or Ivy League universities or mainstream universities. Uh, to have them now be admitted in, under affirmative action programs into major colleges and then to have something like black studies programs or or, or African diasporic studies programs, the names have changed, um, shows me that the debt has been repaid. Let's just say we come up with a figure and a process of delivery that, that everyone's happy with. Would, would this mean that, that, that the issue was put to bed? Like, I, I hate to sound cold, but, but there are taxpayers in America who will wonder what they'll get for their money. You know, the, the, the fear is that you'll pay the reparations and you still get your store burned down the next election or, or whatever. And, 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 you know, I'm being slightly uncharitable here, but the point is, will a lump sum help people move on? Well, it might. It might help some people move on. I mean, some people... You know, some people might use the money to invest in their children's education. Some people might use the money to advance their own careers. Some people might use the money to go buy a new car. I don't know. People, I think some, I think most people probably would use the money uh, if they were advised well in a in a judicious manner. The fact is that, um, and the point I want to make is that the problem of complete equity is impossible in a free society because we're not all equal. Uh, even intraracially, we're not all equal. Not all blacks are equal. Not all whites are equal. And there will always, there are always going to arise disparities and inequities between and among races in this country. Um, and so, you give a lump sum, and people still, there's still going to be disparities, and there's still going to be inequities, and there's going to be a call for reparations movement number two, reparations phase phase two. Or face, or you know, now you know that some politician has has said that well, phase one of the reparations movement was insufficient, and that was just all along that was just an incrementalist move towards something higher. Now we need to move into phase two of the reparations movement, phase three of the reparations movement. And before you know it, you have Jason. Why has incrementalism gone into disfavor? That the West has proven it will win in the end, time, time and time again. Yet people seem to want to destroy the scaffolding that allows this type of incredible change that, that, that we've witnessed in, in America and the like. Uh, uh, people just take that for granted. Well, that's a good point. And I think, you know, um, it's, 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 it's the sense of entitlement that it's like, it's like a sticky libido that you see two-year-olds having. They go into a candy shop and they want it and they want it now. Um, when people have a sense of radical entitlement and and legitimately feel, in some sense, that they have been uh, aggrieved, there are there are people who are victims of racism, um, legitimate victims of racism, and feel that um, 
they have been aggrieved. I think since the 1964 Civil Rights Act as a protected class, those cases do not belong under reparations claims. They belong in courts of law. Um, if you think that you're a victim of racism, well, racism is illegal in America. You know, you, 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 can, you can take those cases to court. Uh, they don't belong under reparations. But I think the incrementalist move is something that um, is part of, um, it requires a kind of mature psychological framework that one has to work with. And my worry is that when social changes um, lack a specific, when, when social changes occur very, very rapidly, we run the danger of lapsing into fascism. Um, social changes do require um, an incrementalist approach, I think, because that's how the democratic process ought to work, um, to give uh, consti various constituencies and people time to accommodate their own impulses and their own set of um, sensibilities, time to catch up with the larger demands of, of others. Now, if we're talking about a fundamental inalienable right, um, I don't think an incrementalist approach is necessary. I don't think something like the abolition of slavery um, or you know, the one has the right to confiscate one's private property. But if we're talking about something like reparations, which is debatable, and is not an inalienable right is something that um, is reasonably uh, debatable. Um, it, it would be better to take an incrementalist approach and 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 to work things out democratically and through a protracted period, as opposed to just sort of through fiat um, and through congressional laws, um, in. in in impose massive taxations on people i don't i don't know how it's going to work out but i i know it's not going away um i know that there are any number of progressives on both sides radical progressives on both sides who want to see um reparations um occur for good there are those who have good good intentions and there are those who have bad intentions they're good there are people who just really want to see a lot of blacks who are suffering um, be made to to live a better life, but I think the darker side of the reparations movement is to bring about multiple phases in order to bring about something like complete equity, which really is a for me is a buzzword for socialism. Well, that's uh, such a juicy topic. I, I, we could we could talk all day about <laughs> reparations. Uh, just mindful of of, of your time, uh, so perhaps we just got a couple of questions, uh, Jason, uh, on some different things. Uh, recently, we spoke to Yaron Brook uh, from the Iron Man Institute. I don't know if you know who he is. Oh, yes. But, oh, yes. Uh, Very well. I read, so I, read, <laughs> I read somewhere that you may enjoy uh, Iron Man's work. Uh, now, when could you just tell us when did you discover Iron Rand and, and if she if her work meant anything to you? Oh, yes. I, I, I discovered her when I was about 20, right before, a couple of months before I left Jamaica. I was... Um, I was writing some, I mean, I have a degree now in, in, in British poetry, among other degrees that I have, and I was writing at the time some bad poetry. And uh, it had the word ego and I, and a friend of mine said, you know, you should read some some Rand. And, and um, so I remember in Jamaica sitting on this on the cold tiles of, of her floor reading, um, starting The Fountainhead, which I did not like at first. So I started reading her nonfiction, The Romantic Manifesto, and, and then worked my way up to The Fountainhead. And it, I must say that, I knew I wanted to get a PhD in, in I thought I was going to get a PhD in um, literature or um, 
I hadn't yet decided on philosophy until I read Ayn Rand. So I must say it was reading Ayn Rand. I knew I was going to get a PhD, but it was probably, I thought, maybe in English literature because that was my passion, literature. And I had read some philosophers before Rand. My father had plied me with books on Bertrand Russell and Immanuel Kant and Nietzsche. But it was on my way over to the States. I finished Atlas Shrugged and I said, I want to, I want to get a PhD in philosophy. Uh, she influenced me enormously in the sense that she gave me a method of cognition, a method of identifying fundamental principles and tying seemingly disparate or unrelated thoughts um, under fundamental principles. And then I just thought that her, you know, I'd always been a rugged, intransigent individualist as a child, but I just lacked the sort of moral vocabulary, the philosophical vocabulary to defend it or to identify it. And I thought her defense of free market capitalism was something that I had not read, having come from a family of all communists, all socialists. My father, my grandfather was a communist whom I adored, my beloved father, <clears throat> who, um, who um, before he succumbed to complete schizophrenia, was a, a, a Zionist socialist, um, believe it or not. And um, I think both my grandmothers were socialists. My mother was pretty apolitical, but, um, but I came from a line of intransigent socialists. And I was the only one as a child who thought, this doesn't make sense. This, I just can't identify with this. So I thought her defense of capitalism was wonderful. Uh, I thought her, the tenets, the basic tenets of her philosophy, the exclusivity of reason, the primacy of productive work in one's life, and the pursuit of, of um, that happy, the one's happiness being one's highest moral purpose just made perfect sense. And I found as I started studying philosophy professionally that there was a kind of lucidity of thought and an originality in many of her ideas that I was not finding in some of the thinkers that I was studying. Well, I get the feeling that in your field, in academia especially, that many people have chosen to become like Peter Keating from The Fountainhead, whereas it sounds like you've gone for the more Howard Rourke approach where... Uh, you know, you have your integrity and you tell the truth, whereas Peter Keating, perhaps some of you, the, your colleagues uh, or people you know, uh, have sacrificed uh, those things for short-term gain. I think so. I, I think it's, uh, Rand said once, I don't have the courage. I'm not, what did she say? I'm not courageous enough. I'm not brave enough to be a coward or something like that. And I think um, we, we do live in a culture in which um, you are, you are rewarded for being a second-hander and to be a, and to be uh, being and just also being mediocre. Um, we live, unfortunately, we live in a culture where greatness and excellence um, are are not as prized as they once were. And every single um, you know average Joe Blow who just produces medi mediocrity is rewarded. And so, but also being a second-hander means going along with herd thinking and group groupthink and collectivism. And so if you're just like everybody else and you sort of fit in, um, you do make the right connections. You do make uh, you, 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 your chances for upward mobility are greater. As, assuming one prizes respectability, you, you are stamped with the, you know, the accolades of, of, of people. And so I think, this, yeah, most, most people fall into being secondhanders that way. And also I must say that though, though, the process of thinking, which Rand identifies as volitional, is pretty hard. It's because to do it consistently on a day-to-day -day basis, as opposed to falling back on other people's thinking unconsciously, 
you know, like they say or people say or just the, the slogans that most of us just yeah donald trump says that yeah. all the time yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> people tell me people say people have said and you go yeah. who said this the, the act of being it's very lonely to be a, a thinker um and to think for oneself every day consistently i don't people have a, don't seem to have a hard time going to the gym and working out their muscles and and, and moaning and groaning but to do that conceptually, to do that cognitively every single day of your life is hard work. And one people just, I think people find it easy to fall in with the herd where they get reinforcement and validation and affirmation. Whereas in the realm of values, uh, to stand alone and to be sort of uh, left there with looking like some kind of freak, uh, which is what it is to be an individualist today, to aspire to, to not even greatness, just excellence. Um, in a in a world that is becoming increasingly vulgar and intellectually bankrupt and and um, is very very very, very difficult. Mm. Well, you've you've refused to follow the script of victimhood that's been embraced by the elites. What, what are the social and professional costs for for not following the script? Well, they've been vast. I mean, I have a lawsuit against my university right now, and um, because I dared to write. The things that I write, but more specifically, you know, and um, I wrote an article defending Israel's right to Netanyahu's right because I'm, I was a big fan of Netanyahu and I defended his right to annex Judean Samaria. And the Palestinian Students for Justice just went berserk to go over buildings in my university, and um, I was formally censured by my by my colleagues by the faculty council called a genocidal war criminal and a, a racist and a all sorts of names and um in violation of my contract the way i was censured i i have been censured for saying things like or reprimanded for saying things like um you know when students say that i i can't say that philosophy is a mother of all sciences because men can have babies and i say well men cannot have babies you know trans men who have babies are biological women with their reproductive apparatus intact i get into huge huge trouble for that so um i continue to get into a lot of trouble and um but um and i don't secretly aspire to be a provocateur i just think that i can't stand political correctness because it conceals the truth and it's it's practiced by a bunch of self-righteous pricks who really want to silence others so that they can exercise some sort of become a kind of managerial class who not only have some coercive monopoly on the truth because they don't but they want to silence the, the, the uh, dissent so that they can become the vanguards of a new kind of world order, which is what they really are after. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but they really want a new kind of world order where the primacy of feelings and emoting supersede or takes precedence over reason, logic, and, and rational argumentation. And so whenever I'm faced with a situation like that, I just viscerally cannot help but speak out. Um, it's just not in my nature. I was I was that way as a child in in high school. I had to I went to Catholic private English Catholic high school. Um, sounds funny, right? Because England is um, mostly Anglican, but um, this <laughs> this is an English Catholic high school, and um, and uh, I you know I just always had to question things, and and I guess this came from just reading white as a child, and when you read, you you learn to to question and to see an alternative perspective, but. Yeah, I've just, and those things like respectability don't matter to me because I don't respect most of my 
I don't mean people who work in my university. I just mean the professoriate and intellectuals in general. I, it's very hard to respect people who are uh, are part of established or orthodoxy and and uh, and just and are, are timid and lack courage. I feel that way whenever I get the push notifications from the Atlantic, and it just and, and I just roll my eyes at the at all the New York Times, both of them. Oh, yeah. They get these 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 headlines from both of them. It says like we've got a something problem, or you know the far right Latina wins some some <laughs> the the Republican thing, and you go oh, shut up, you know, or like they, they, these people. I'm glad they just I, I they just drive me crazy. Everything they say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Jason, we're very mindful of time. Uh, we, we like to finish uh, all of our interviews w- with a final question, and we'd like to know what you're reading right now. Oh, I'm reading a book called, it's called The Flag and the Cross, White Christian Nationalism and the Threat to Democracy. So I'm looking at the, the insurrection movement, and I like to read things from, um, from multiple perspectives. So it's called, the, the, I think it's called The Flag and the Cross, um, White Christian Nationalism and the Threat to Democracy, because I want to see, as a scholar, I just want to understand um, what January 6th was all about. And there are people who believe that it, it's tied to, to white Christian nationalism. I want to understand what white Christian nationalism is about before I, you know, before I talk about a lot of things, I just read deeply on both sides. At the same time, I'm reading a book on woke supremacy. And um, so I'm reading both stuff from the left and the right and trying to make sense of um, what's really going on in our country, because I think there are two sides that are um, are equally problematic. You know, that both there are extremisms on both sides that are that are that are equally problematic. One side is more problematic than the other, I think. But um, but I think so. That's what I'm reading: um, the flag and the cross, Christian nationalism, and white Christian nationalism and its threat to American democracy. I just started it. Um, oh, oh, and this other, this other one that I that I have to show you. It's called "Are Men." Oh, it's an older book. It's called "Are Men Obsolete?" Um, <laughs> Are Men Obsolete? The monk, the monk debate on gender with Hannah Rosen, Maureen Dowd versus Kathleen Moran and Camille Paglia. One of my favorite all-time authors, Camille Paglia. Yes, she's the, great. The, 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 she's, the beloved Camille Paglia. Fine. They're depend. They're debating whether I just finished that last night. Um, as I was trying to make my way through my my. my <laughs> that sounds like it's from an era, uh, you know, when there was such a thing as men. That's I right. know. Yeah. That, well, <laughs> well, that's well. That's my next book. The book that I'm writing that I have to start next week. I'm on a contract. It's called "Man Haters: uh, The Left's Vicious Attempt to." Um, what's it called? "Man Haters: The Left's Vicious Attempt to Emasculate Men and Boys." Mm. Sounds, oh, wonderful! Sounds delicious. Oh. <laughs> well, you you, yes. you must come back and and talk to us about that. That's uh, that's yeah, right up our I alley. Will. Yeah, uh, we have a we have an interest in in how we've been emasculated. Uh, so <laughs> 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 reading that one. But but uh, thank you so much for uh, today, Jason, for for being so generous with your time. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun, and uh, it's made my day. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> great. We don't hear that often. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>